Welcome to Discover Energy Work. And today I have a bear, a, I'm very happy to have Enoch Lee with me. And why am I very happy? Because Enoch has developed therapy, and therapy is all about bears and teddy bears. And I think it's a, a, more about, a lot more about um, uh, waking something up in our lives and waking up a playfulness in our lives. But we're going to be talking all about that. How are you, Enoch? That's the first thing I want to ask you. Um, yeah, I think actually right this moment, I, uh, I feel like I can actually relax now for my day. Um, I've been a bit flustered the last two weeks with the uh, Daughter getting ill and son getting ill, and uh, mm, mm. and also just talking to many lots of different people as we uh, expand the team of, uh, of the business I have. So I feel a bit like, oh, okay, now I can have a chat with a friend. That's nice. You know, connect right. on a on a level. Excellent. Yeah. And and um, I suppose, um, yeah, I suppose we're all. Um, well, I kind of want to introduce you. So I've said therapy, but mm. how would you introduce yourself to, or how do you introduce yourself to people with therapy? Or, or do, you, do you use therapy to introduce yourself? Probably not. Then. Well, it, it depends. I think therapy is the professional introduction in some ways. It is my, so I identify as a social entrepreneur and therapy is the name of the business. I'm sure we'll go into sort of you know, why bears and all of that later. But I think also, in addition to maybe the, the professional identity, because uh, I've been toying with this a little bit, of, and, and I've felt a bit split lately of I have this image on LinkedIn, and I think a lot of people have that of this is everything we're doing. And then I wonder how each of us are actually doing inside behind closed doors and um and i've been wondering sort of uh, on the professional front it seems lots of things are happening and then i think if i had to introduce myself as on a personal level i would say hi i'm enoch and i'm a paradox you're a paradox yeah yeah, yeah. well yeah, i'm I a contradiction or something like that yeah, well, you're coming up with one of these things that I like to say is like we are veiled beings. Like that, who we say we are is probably exactly who we aren't. Um, and mm. you know, and then when we have these uh, interesting optical illusions, I, I call them optical illusions of the mind, which uh, which is where, uh, for example, that. Um, uh, their biases. So essentially, we think uh, there's something called the um, curse of knowledge bias. So we, what we know, we can't imagine ever not having known. Yeah. So once we say have an experience, you know, experience, and you go, well, of course, every would, everybody would understand that. And then we forget that at some point we didn't know it either, and we didn't understand it. Um, so yeah, it's. And, and right now, you know, um, yeah, I mean, I feel in a way, I was actually curious, it was going through my head, you, you know, you're doing therapy. And I, as far as I know, bears 
in the uh, American Indian tradition, uh, the, the Native mm-hmm. American tradition, they are about going inside. So it's hibernation, mm-hmm. the, the, the deep, deep dive into the self. Was there any idea of that when yeah. you, when you uh, started your therapy thing? Maybe not consciously, um, because I didn't know about that tradition um, or, or that, that thought, but I think it does actually represent what I think therapy is in the essence, because on the, you know, on the outer layer, the, the introduction, that elevator pitch is we are, a, we are an organizational consultancy and training company focused on workplace mental health. And mental health these days is quite a topic at the moment. And then you peel off one layer, then I can talk about how we help companies build sustainable strategies for mental health, how we help people with individual resilience, emotional awareness. You know, mm. I'm, I'm in Beijing at the moment, so we're focused on uh, the business in China. You peel another layer, then it's community awareness, raising awareness in in, in this country or even just starting with the city of you know, this is a thing called mental health um, and obviously the taboos and stigma that come with it how do we relate to people with our stories normalizing the topic but i think we keep on feeling the layer in, into you know going in for me it is also very much around the self-awareness and recognizing the different parts of ourselves which is where therapy helped me walk out of depression was starting to learn about the different parts of myself especially the bits that i don't like so much through collecting all these different bears that looked cute and i gave them names and personalities but in essence i was projecting myself onto these bears and why i say that is because the outer layer of mental health i think we can have knowledge and information but if we don't understand how we are feeling we don't understand our own thoughts we're not aware that this is going on then how do we know whether we are well or not? And because I can tell you, these are all the symptoms of burnout, for example. But if you don't know that you are exhausted or you don't know that not being able to sleep and you're not having enough sleep and therefore you're short-tempered, that's a sign of burnout and recognizing these behaviors. This is, there is no connection between the information and the application. And I think for me, that's the essence of what we're helping people realize is who am I, where am I, and how does mental health apply to me? And for me, where do I draw the line between this is persistence, and right now I'm just really burned out and exhausted. Where am I fluctuating in my mood? Or when might this be what we clinically call depression and anxiety and maybe we need support? in whatever ways that suits us. Yeah. And so I think why I take to what you said about the native Indian philosophy, that it is about going inside ourselves and it's not always pleasant and it's sometimes a bit scary. And I think that's why with the addition of the playfulness, it helps you also make some of this knowing about ourselves less threatening. Mm. Can you talk about um, like how like your journey a bit or 
is there something you're comfortable to talk about? Like, how did you, how did you get there? You wrote this book and stressing the city. Um, yeah. So I'm happy to talk about it. like like you say, it's all in my book, uh, Stress in the City, playing my way out of depression. So it's quite public in some ways. Like uh, about 10, 11 years ago, I experienced a really serious period of clinical depression. I think there's burnout uh, included in it. And, and burnout, I think the official definition from the World Health Organization, it includes things like extreme exhaustion, fatigue, um, unable to concentrate, which overlapped a bit with my, also the symptoms of depression at that time. Yeah. I also attempted to take my own life a few times in those two, three years of uh, painful times. And that sense of despair, powerlessness, hopelessness, helplessness was a sensation that I had never felt before to that extent about a decade ago. So when this happened, I didn't understand what mental health was. And it's only now when I look back or when I started writing about it, when I started my work, that I started to understand, oh, this is the concept of it and also how I had contributed to some of the stigma and taboo and biases towards the topic. Because when I was first diagnosed with depression, I felt like I had failed. Like I, I was a failure. I was mm. weak. I, I felt like I used to be the trophy daughter and now I've brought shame to my whole family. I couldn't right. talk to my managers or colleagues. You know, that sense of, whoa, what's happened to me? And, and, and that, a question of what have I done wrong? to merit this because it felt like everything was going well the job was going well i had a cushy job i had a boyfriend i was young enough and and so it was really a shock to the system when this happened mm. and i think now as i look back it felt like it was also a message to me that who i think i was then and who i really am and also the Enoch who wanted to meet society's expectations or what she thought was society's expectations was just pulled in so many different directions that something just said stop like just stop stop running stop chasing all these things and think about it and I think in some ways the depression was a message to me of, yeah. just think just just look at yourself and what's going on and so for, for about two, three years, it was, it was painful. I remember times where I would just lie, lay down on the floor in the living room and cry. And I don't, I don't even know what I was crying about, but the tears would come out. And then there are days of rage and then frustration. And then there are days where I just stayed in my bed for two or three days straight. Um, I didn't eat, lost interest in a lot of things. I obviously had to stop going to work and I also decided in the end to quit my job and decide look, I need to focus on myself at the moment. Mm. Um, and, and I think there were lots of times where the, the thoughts keep ruminating and, and, and so it brings me to a state where cognitively I understand there is light at the end of the tunnel, that this too shall pass. But in that moment, it was so unbearable or even 
the thought of, well, even if I got better or even when I get to the end of the tunnel, then what? So what? There is no point. And, and so the meaninglessness of my life and everything I was doing, my being, the world, you know, everything um, also brought me a few times to saying, well, I think I've had it enough on this world. Uh, and, and said, you know, this is, this is yeah. the end and I don't want to continue living anymore. Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, with um, having a daughter who took her her life, um, you know, I can, mm. I can made a lot of thoughts about it since uh, four, four or five years ago, and, and you know that. I mean, I, I mm. and I went through the depression, and I think I sometimes think I, I still there. I just, you know, I just don't, I don't know if you have that same feeling. It's like. Uh, will I ever really ever be out of this? Is this just like part of who I am? Yeah. If you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I relate to that because I think I, having written and thought about it and worked in this space for almost 10 years now, I'm also at a point where I see depression or anxiety or what we call mental health conditions in a different light of is it really a problem to be fixed? I understand the implications of it, but is it, is it not in some ways a state of mind? And can we, instead of trying to treat it, can we also look at it from a perspective of understanding the meaning of it and the message that it brings and how it met, and, and, you probably know this more than me, and I'm ashamed to say as, as a Chinese person, I, I don't know enough about our own country's philosophy, but I would say that in some of our philosophy, in our poetry, in our history, or in a lot of Eastern thought, um, something that we term depression is also considered a fluid state of mind. Um, and it is and it isn't, right? And so I'm also, in a philosophical way, trying to reconcile how do I make meaning of it? Because I've, I've had depressive episodes over the last 10 years. Um, and actually, towards the end of last year, the last three months, was probably one of, it's not probably, it was the worst episode I've had since 10 years ago. And I got to a point where I, I cognitively knew and I reached out for support to the people that, are there for me in my emergency time to say, I'm thinking about killing myself and I know this is what I'm doing to prepare and you need to be there and, and check on me. Yeah. So it got to that extent again where I felt numb. And so I think it keeps coming and each time it comes, I like to engage with it and just say, look, dear old friend, you're back again. What are you trying to tell me this time? Yeah, it's, it's interesting, you're making me think um, they have the five transformations in the Chinese. Um, I'm not sure where, what is it? Chinese medicine. They have Jing Chi Shan Shu Wu, and it's like the mm. essence, the energy, the spirit, the emptiness, the oneness. And I, I wonder if mm. we get, well, we do get lost in the emptiness, like mm. before we realize, oh, there's a oneness. But I mean, also, we were talking about these layers of being and you know, I'm so reminded that we tend to attach to, I'm, um, I'm a you know, girlfriend, boyfriend, I'm a, a successful da di da. 
I'm a whatever. Whatever you're mm. saying you are yeah. is actually disconnecting you from who you are, really. Do you, do you know what I mean? Mm. Mm. Like you're unable, sometimes mm. that the, the, the layers are, are so in our mind, they're so inflexible that we feel they're straitjackets and we can't be ourselves in those layers, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. I would, my experience of it is when we talk about the identities and roles, which, you know, the examples you gave, it, what it does is that it starts to put boxes somehow in our head of if I were a mother, this is the kind of mother I need to be or want to be. I do think that identity is part of us, but perhaps what we aren't doing is we're not looking at all of these identities comprehensively and understanding they are all part of us and we move between them with a complexity that I don't think we completely understand. So I think what you were describing is that splitting off of um, I need to now fit in the mold of this identity and then so who am I or the, the holistic me just gets lost in the in that sort of Oh, I need to now fit into this mold. And then there is still Enoch there. And I think that's where I, I really had that lesson of actually defragmenting and why the bears helped me. So one, one winter day in my depression, uh, Tim, who was my boyfriend then and now my husband, he managed to drag me out into a shopping mall. And I hadn't probably hadn't left home for weeks or something. And and we passed by a toy shop and I saw this bear and, and in that moment, I think what crossed my mind was, oh, the bear's looking at me and it's smiling and I smiled back and, and Tim's like, wow, I haven't seen a smile in months. I'm going to get this bear. I, I don't care what magic it does. And that was the start of that part of the journey where he actually inspired a lot of it. I think he's, the way he grew up in Australia is very different from the way I grew up in in Hong Kong was that kind of mindset and he's always been creative and playful and, and he was the one who asked me when we got home why don't we give the bear a name and I said okay floppy off the top of my head and then he said well why floppy and I said well he doesn't do much he flops on the sofa all day watches tv and eats mosquitoes and <laughs> back then I didn't have that knowledge now I have more of that knowledge to understand that was possibly an expression of my unconscious mind and my unconscious feelings of actually that was me, but it yes. was too hard to look at myself. So let me put it onto this cute bear. It's the bear that's flopping around doing nothing, having no meaning in his life. And it's not me. And as right, the bear right. collection continued and my friends bears of different colors and shapes and sizes, each one had a name, had a personality and, uh, I think, you know, all of them are reminiscences of me. You know, it's right. that metaphor, you know, who am I? There's all these bits. There's the, there's the bits where I would aspire to be like some like chili bear who's a little bit more chilled out and relaxed and it doesn't matter. Mm. But I probably identify a lot more with uh, fuzzy bear who's a little bit, um, calculating and snobby bear who's snobbish and 
busy bear who's just running around not knowing what they're doing all the time, what he's doing all the time. So I think it was that that's helped me dis defragment who I was, all the multifaceted layers and bits, and then slowly reintegrate to go, okay, I'm getting to know myself now and getting to accept that there are parts that I may not like so much, but then it's also me and, yeah. Which, kind of you know, that it. kind of brings me back to what you said, I'm a paradox, because if you've got these parts that don't really sort of fit together. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I, no. I want to be that and I want to be that at the same time, and I, I, I can't, yeah? And um, then that's a nice uh, reflection on that. Also, you know, you remind me, I kind of thinking about um, how the Greeks um, had, you know, we tend to have in, in a Western, uh, Western culture, uh, we tend to have this one God, you know, and the Greeks had many gods. Mm. It's like, it's sort of like it had to be right. a family, you know, it had to be, you have to have a bad God and he's always doing naughty stuff and, and he's out, you know, he's a bit like a, he's out, you know, meeting a lot of women and then he tricks them, he turns into a bull and he, you know, and then rides away onto an island and then seduces them and da, 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 you know, it's Zeus and I think it's uh, Paris and or I'm not even sure, Persephone or whoever it is. Yeah. And, and you've, they've all got their different roles. And I'm like thinking, well, you know, it's like, it's almost like, um, again, they're in a way like different parts of personality. Have you ever, I'm just gonna make a little twist here. Have you ever worked with masks? Masks. Because um, I find masks are amazing to sort of be you and, and then be another you. So you sort of put on a, you make a mask, which is, yeah. a, which is an alter ego. And then you kind of go, yeah. I'm going to now be the mask. And you allow an, yeah. an expression of yourself to come out that doesn't normally come out. I have it directly, uh, but the, the concept I have worked with or played with uh, in the workshops and trainings we've done where people speak through their toys or their objects and they become that but because it's a toy or an object you know, some of them bring stuffed toys some of them bring like a postcard case whatnot you know it can be anything and they start to adopt this persona of if I was this you know what kind of a postcard would I be or and because it's their thing they also have an emotional attachment to it and and what i've seen in doing some of those you know we, I've, I've asked people to talk to each other through their toys as well in in a coaching conversation or like using a coaching technique in order to dig deeper and find out more about how we see mental health for example and because there is that play it's also a little bit silly a little bit fun they get uh, it relaxes them and they start really talking about what they think inside and feel inside instead of that I need to be strong and happy all the time. And I think taking up that persona also gives them a sense of freedom because if they something came out and they didn't like it, they'd be like, oh, it was the bear, it wasn't me. Or it was the postcard, it wasn't me. It was my candle, it wasn't me. And I think in some ways it's helpful because I'm not trying to get people to see everything 
deep in one goal. I'm trying to create the opportunity for them to have a method of learning about themselves and specifically tying it in with their mental health. And, and then as and when they're ready, I think they will continue to dig or reflect. And if they don't want to do it, fine. You know, it's, I think the mind can also only take so much in one go to process and, and make meaning of things. So, but the masks are a good idea. So maybe you're just giving me an idea to try something next time. And now because everybody has to wear masks, um, you know, a different kind of face mask, but at least it hides some part of us and maybe there's something fun to do with it. Well, there's um, uh, Rudolf Steiner in his school in Ottersberg in Germany. They have a, one of the professors is the mask professor and he, he you know, teaches people to make, make the mask and the, the whole, the making of the mask can be, mm-hmm. um, you know, you can make your, your wicked mask and you can make your, you know, your yeah. good mask, or you can make yeah. a mask of somebody else that, uh, you had difficulty dealing with and then you can put it on. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's a, a lot of, um, flexibility in masks and I used to do it, um, yeah. when I was teaching some energy work because people would say, I can't do it. So I said, okay, just put on a mask and hide behind it. So I'd have these blank masks and I'd say, okay, um, you behind the mask don't, don't think you can do it, but the mask, apparently, it's giving the impression that you can. So just say whatever you say and do what I explained to you without worrying. <laughs> and they had, they had yeah. yeah, it was kind of fun. I mean, I did it as a, as a bit of an experiment, but um, yeah, it's kind of fun. So. Well, yeah. Yeah, so. yeah. I think for a lot of people, it's a lot of this kind of work and thoughts are quite exposing. And if we don't have the habit or the, or the tools to help ourselves, then it actually can feel very self-conscious because we're not used to that kind of raw connection with other people. Um, so for somebody I've seen in workshops where uh, once they relate to me or our trainers' stories of our personal experiences, they suddenly open up. And I've had people pour out their life stories to us because they it was almost the first time they have ever had that space where they felt seen and understood enough to talk about how they really feel and short of it being therapy because that's where i draw the line in our work mm. is i'm much more around psychosocial education and awareness and yeah. if somebody really chooses to go to therapy i would refer them um, and i think that's actually some of the major impact of our work is people feel that liberty and freedom to say i can be myself i can talk about my pain and no one's going to judge me for it. And realizing that perhaps everybody in the room has had some sort of experience. And, and suddenly, I think they see each other in a different light. So for a company, it also builds that sense of connection in, inside a team because they see each other as people and not just as a colleague. And they start to understand that we all have our fragilities. And so... I think that's also the understanding is where a lot of the empathy comes out from of understanding, okay, I've had my challenges, I have history. This person across everyone has their story that we can't read. So 
can yeah. we be a bit more patient with each other when when, when it, things happen? Yeah, yeah. I, I can I can confirm that. You know, I did. Um, uh, I was invited by um, Mind Hong Kong to be one of their mental health first aid yeah. trainers, and and yeah. and then to to stand in the room and say, okay, I'm going to tell you what it feels like when you want to kill yourself and I'm going to tell you what it feels like when you're depressed. And I'm doing this because, um, it's, I'm going to go first. It's like, I'm, I'm not going to wait for somebody here to be vulnerable. I'm going to make myself vulnerable. I'm going to go first. I'm going to tell you like the shit, excuse my French, the worst experiences of my life where it's, it's like, I, I always say my my um, uh, suicidal worst suicidal moments, moments were not wanting to live more than not wanting to die. I just didn't want to live. That was that was the worst thing. Um, yeah, yeah. And then, absolutely, like you say, like people just going, "Wow, I can open up now," because somebody's if they're strong enough to say that to a whole group of people, then, um, yeah. but I find it, I find it quite draining. I find, I don't find it easy to, to be that, that advocate. Do you have yeah. the same experience to kind of, it, it's sort of like. I do. I do. I, uh, and actually I was making sense of some of my, part of my depressive episode at the end of last year. And I think that was part of it, where the last few years I have been very public. Uh, the book, talks, the panel discussions, articles, uh, really pumping up the work, building the brand of therapy, doing a team. So there was a lot of public exposure and public discussion about the journey. And I think sometimes when that happens, I also, and, and because of my own experience, I think in depression, I've also become quite sensitive to emotions in the room and picking up, especially picking up thoughts that people aren't articulating. That I can feel it in, in, the, in the room and I, can, I have an intuition about what's going on. And, and I think when I'm in a space and there's about 100 people all feeling and thinking similar things but not talking about it, I pick up the pain because there's nowhere for it to go. Then it starts to take the energy away from me. And I think there's also another bit where being so public with it, people also start to get in, form an image of me that I felt quite pulled into and drawn to filling. Yeah. So I need to be that in their mind. And it was particularly pertinent. I think there was one talk where I decided I am going to say what I really think instead of what I think they want to hear. And what I mean by that is I think two or three years ago when I would do these talks, I get the sense that people want to know the solution. They want to know the five steps to prevent depression. They want to know how do I get out of burnout. And I try to meet that because I do say, well, if that's helpful, then these are what I do. But slowly as my own thinking developed, I also started to think, well, actually, it's not so easy to prevent. And I, 
I don't intentionally say this is how I prevent it. Rather, I've gotten to a point where I now know how to live with it when it comes. And I also don't want to give people that false idea that once you get out of depression, that's the end. And if anything, most of the people I work with, even internationally, who have this lived experience, it comes back. It comes back in the, I don't, I don't want people to think you get out of it once and, and that's it. And so when I decided to switch or to be more open with, well, this is really the dilemmas that I'm grappling with around mental health. Um, I think it was met with a bit of shock and surprise because when people come, they want a solution and they want to be told it's going to be okay. And when they ask me a question of, well, how do you build resilience? And my answer is, well, you go through the pain. They're a bit like, huh? Like that doesn't, that doesn't work. That's not what we want. So I think those public, you know, speaking about it already is draining. There are times when I emotionally go back to that experience to be able to tell that story. Um, so that also for me, emotionally, it's taxing. And I think it's just when there's too many people around and even the last week or so, because we've been recruiting new joiners to our team and, and volunteers most of them are curious as to why i started this work so i've been telling my story about maybe five or six times in the last two weeks and right. and i do find that sort of helpful for them but i need a lot of time to recuperate especially when i find energy in being alone yeah i mean on that note you see i i um maybe you'll relate to this when i was low and i would say like um i'd say like okay my daughter's you know recently died and she took her life um people would go down to my level and bring me dirt further down do you know what i mean like their their energy would go oh no and and i would go oh god and they uh, even to the point that people would cry and be inconsolable in front of me and i'm like uh actually i don't you have, have to comfort them instead. i i don't have the energy to comfort you right now yeah um you know literally somebody crying for 30 minutes and you know it's having dinner with them the whole time they're just in tears i'm like okay yeah I, I, i'm and so while you want to be genuine because you you know we we have a cognitive dissonance when we are we are in a way narcissistic when we put up an image of ourselves which is an image that we want other people to see rather than the true image yeah. um then we have yeah. these inner conflicts and then they're they're exhausting in themselves and it even goes with with when we're trying to teach mental health it actually can catch up with us uh you know it's like that's not fair that shouldn't be like that should it <laughs> think we should well, like feel fantastic burning myself out sometimes trying to help people not to feel burnout and i do recognize that irony in it and i think part of it for me why i feel like it's such a paradox is or, or maybe I think the, 
the exhaustion comes from in trying to deny our paradoxes because I think everyone has it and somehow somewhere along the way we have this idea that if we are happy we can't be sad but we can be happy and sad at the same time we can be grateful and also complaining at the same time and I think it is and I read an article once I can't remember where it was but um, I thought it was a very good article where it says it's not about trying to iron out the paradoxes but to accept that life is just a paradox um, yeah. and to be okay with all these different so-called conflicting ideas and emotions and to start to see them as not being mutually exclusive. Well, if I ever publish this book that I talk about exactly about that because I talk about Tai Chi and Tai Chi, you know, as Tai Chi is the mother of yin and yang. So that means they are one yin and yang are one. It's not, they are not in conflict. In Tai Chi. No, they're not. They're in the mother. You can't not have. Hmm. So, um, yeah. So I talk a lot about that in my in my book, and, and it's not Tai Chi Chuan. It's like this this philosophy of Tai Chi. Um, but uh, yeah, I I think same with um, um, this whole um, mania that we have to feel safe and to feel stable and to feel uh, like we've achieved something. It's like manic. Mm. Um, and uh, these are all things which are incredibly um, temporary, incredibly ephemeral, um, because they're gonna go away. And in a way, I think like the the ultimate expression of how ephemeral they are is to take your life and say like this doesn't matter. None of this matters. None of this matters. Of course, then we are faced, I believe because of my experiences with energy, we're faced with another conundrum that we had the opportunity of life and we gave it up and there's something that we were missing and we'll probably want to, we'll probably have to come back and do it all again. And then that's really kind of like, this was not worth it. This, <laughs> this was a bit of a waste of time. So, but that's where I view it. But, but I had, but I, did you have any like spiritual experiences when you were like uh, in your depression? Did you have any like um, I lights or you had a bear that smiled at you? Which is something. Yeah, I had, um, um, I remember a few points in time where, and, and I'm, I'm struggling with words because I, to this day, can't tell if I actually saw them or I thought I saw them. Um, but there were a time where I was in the bathtub crying and it felt like, and I saw Angel Gabriel sitting up the end of the bathtub just being with me um, and then I thought and I think I wrote about this in the book as well I thought I saw outside my window um, Elijah and the chariots of fire come down and I said to Tim he's come to take me now I can go now um, and I, was, I think I was trying to get out the window but the windows out of my living room only the two side windows can open and so 
the middle part actually can't open. Um, and, and to this day, I still am not quite sure how to understand it. Um, and I think this experience actually has opened my mind in a way to not, to at least not reject the things that I don't know. Because I think before this experience, I was quite absolute in, and, and having grown up in a, in a Christian family and religion, I had the dogma that anything not this was bad. Um, and so I think in my mind, I, I kind of go, well, if this wasn't this, and I can't say it was the preacher or what it was, I think a lot of it was also my own interpretation of it. And this experience really helped me open my mind to go, well, maybe, or at least possibility of, or at least learn a bit about it before I reject it as superstition or weird or crazy, whatnot. And, and the last year or so, I've also, because I remember when I was in my depression, one of my friends here in Beijing wanted me to go see a Reiki master. And I had no idea what Reiki was, what chakras were. When she told me, I was like, oh, that's weird. No, thank you. And maybe about two, three years ago, I started being more open to these ideas. Um, partly also some of my friends around me were talking about it. I was less rejecting of it. And I go, okay, this is a curiosity. Can I at least understand it? And so the last year or so, I've also been reading different books on uh, past life regressions, um, I'm speaking to a friend about soul contracts. I used to think tarot cards and oracle cards were, you know, that old lady in a dark room with a crystal ball and, 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 and now I'm like, okay, well, you know, if people are looking at it, at least I can look at it from a curious standpoint and see why and what it does. Mm. So I've been looking at all these things which 10 years ago, I would have completely, very quickly disregarded as um, like a conman or, or you know, somebody making something up and, mm -hmm. and uh, who would be quote unquote stupid enough to believe it. And so when you say spiritual experiences, I, I think what the experience has brought me is to actually question what does spirituality mean for me? Mm. And religion is but one thing in it. And also I think religion is much more for me now, rituals. It doesn't necessarily mean beliefs. Um, so going to church is a ritual, but what I believe of the church, that's something else. And, and so I, I don't have an answer. I'm still in that process of understanding. And, and I also started practicing calligraphy and a bit of Tai Chi with, and with my teacher, we've been studying some of the ancient Chinese literature and understanding some of that from purely like an intellectual perspective, but it has helped me think about uh, Buddhism. It has helped me think about what we call Confucianism, the, the philosophies of the doctrine of the mean. How do we learn? What is actually virtue? It's not really just knowing when to bow or where to stand. Like I think we've, in the modern day, we've taken it very literally yeah. of this is the routine, this is the things without understanding the meaning behind it. And I think if I understand, my shallow understanding of it is those were examples of what striving for virtue is, but virtue in itself, it's something much deeper than that. 
simply knowing where to stand and who eat, gets to eat first at the, at the dining table. Right, right. Yeah, totally. I mean, I like, um, I read this, uh, John Stewart, at, um, the, the owner at Kamalaya, recommended a book to me by Karen Armstrong, and I think it was called The Great Awakening. And it was the journey of all, all of the philosophies um, from Asia through, uh, through um, the Middle East and so on. Um, and it was Confucius that made the golden rule, which was essentially treat other people as you would like to be treated or, or something like that. Mm -hmm. And you see it actually, uh, and golden. Why? I said, well, why is it golden? He said, well, because gold is a metal that can't be corrupted. It doesn't rust like other metals mm. there, you know, they oxidize, but gold, it stays the same or never sort of change. And, and I'm right. Mm. I'm reminded again of it's pointing towards oneness and there you have your paradox again yeah that mm. we are two and we are one mm. i should treat you as i treat myself mm. but am i prepared to do that and am i prepared to do that for myself and i'm am i prepared to treat mm. treat myself so nicely maybe or mm. am i prepared so it's it yeah i mean it's it's it is really really interesting and i think you know i I think the most spiritual people are down to earth. They're very, very down to earth. Mm. Um, and um, I would say, you know, forgiveness, forgiveness is, uh, you know, I've, I went away from, uh, you know, intellectually away from Christianity because of my interest in Taoism and Kung Fu and everything else. And yet yeah. you couldn't express anything more simply than forgive you know love one another and forgive each other because forgiveness is going forgiveness is if god forgives you in the uh, judeo-christian tradition he forgives your original sin you return to paradise to complete innocence in the garden of eden it's everything is one again yeah and so i i think it's just like yeah. It's a wonderful, wonderful um, philosophy. But again, how do we deal with it a, on a daily life? And yeah, I suppose we get our bears out and we, we you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, yeah, with the spirituality side, uh, part of what, because it resonated with me what you said of it wasn't so much wanting to die, but rather not wanting to live. And I think a lot of people don't understand this about uh, people who are suicidal. It's not so much we're seeking death, but we're avoiding life. And is there something in between? And uh, what I've learned there, and um, it, at least my reflection throughout that process was, I don't think we contemplate enough about death, what it means and what it means to us, each person individually, like what is it? Because the easiest way to think about it is physically our heart don't pump anymore. But is it the end? Um, I've no idea. I've not 
actually died before. I don't know what, what goes around. Does it come back around? But I think it is also in that fear of death. Like you say, you know, the metaphor of uncertainty is death. It's like the fear of death, our, immortal, our mortality, that all these things will come to an end, that we seem to put too much weight on life like living and, and breathing because I, I've never quite understood why people would say to me, you shouldn't die. When, when I share some of my suicidal thoughts and when I say, well, why? They would say, well, your, your friends will miss you. Your kids will miss you. People will be sad. And I'm like, well, but that's about them. It's not about me. And yeah. so is it that I have to stay alive so that they can avoid their grief? Um, and I know it's hurtful to say some of these things, and I, I know some people would call it selfish, whatnot, but I'm, not, I'm trying to look at it also as trying to un help us at least reflect on why would I hold that point of view? And I think a lot of people don't actually ask themselves that question. And, and that for me is also the self-awareness of, you know, if, if I, I play with bears and people think I'm crazy, then I also go, well, why not? And, and people don't really think about that either. Or they have that judgment of, oh, you're almost 40, you shouldn't be playing with bears. And I'm like, well, why not? Or play shouldn't be at work. Why not? And, and I think it's a lot of us accept so much of the... Dialogue that just goes round, especially with social media, and accepting it without really thinking, why do I accept it and why do I not accept it? I think even in the whole mental health space, where suicide prevention, and I've I've been to a con I think it was a few years ago where uh, event on either World Mental Health Day or World Health Day when depression was a theme and. I heard a doctor on stage say, well, the way to prevent suicide is to tell your kids that they shouldn't do so. <laughs> like, I don't think that's going to work very well. Um, or that you tell them it's bad and they should never do that and they should never think of that. And, and I think that's part of a whole culture of learning where you just don't think about it, just say it's bad, it's wrong, it will be penalised without actually explaining why. And I think that actually takes us to a space where as we grow up, then we grapple and we ask those questions and then we, we get super confused because we've actually never really thought about it or nobody has explained to us yep. Yep. why. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, it was something that I was really contemplating after Emma died was just... Uh, you know, if I do sex education, I get less um, unwanted pregnancies, I get less uh, sexually transmitted diseases. If I do drug education, I have less people taking drugs, I have less people dying of overdoses and so on. Why would I not do suicide education? Why would I not talk about that? That would seem like, especially with the, uh, an epidemic of youth suicide, uh, wouldn't it make sense to talk about it? Mm. No? Mm. But, but the theory you want to look at is uh, terror management theory by Solomon, um, some Eastern European name. It's, I can't remember. It's like a very interesting name. I'll look it up. And uh, 
but it's it's based on the philosophy of Ernest Becker, Professor Ernest Becker, and it essentially says mm-hmm. our reason for live to live, and this is what Socrates says. It says uh, philosophy is for preparation for death. Um, our reason for for living is all about our fear of death. Mm. Mm. And when I when I, I I heard their talk and I was like, well, that's that's really interesting because when you're threatened or even a society is threatened, and we saw this uh, with certain political campaigns that in the past um, mm. the the Nazis uh, made everybody terribly afraid of the Jews and. Uh, there were a big threat and then people become very conservative and they become very protective and they, they, they become more likely to become nationalistic. Um, and we can't currently have a situation where everybody is terrified. And so we have a kind of almost a dangerous situation where people can, um, yeah, can easily because of their fear of death is they can easily, uh, become very conservative so I was reminded I I was at the Hong Kong mental health conference I think it was two years ago and I was able to do a short talk there but I remember one of the keynote speakers and she said which I tend to agree that the work around suicide prevention is much more around knowing that when the person at the end decides to end their own lives, that we have done everything that we could to help them understand there are alternatives. And at the end, if it was their decision, that's their decision. And I think that's the bit where I gravitate towards in our work with mental health of because a lot of people take these decisions without knowing without understanding what they're going through, without the awareness that this is how they are feeling. And so with building the awareness, I'm hoping that people can in some ways make more informed decisions. And of course, if we can help them through that time where they change their mind, then you know, all the better. But I think our work is really about helping people gain that awareness so that they actually know what choices they are making. I think a lot of people who are in that state of mind aren't even aware that they are going through this. So, of course, then for them, it's uh, yeah. there's no choice, there's no alternative. They feel compelled to. Right? Well, I think if we're talking about that that uh, dichotomy of stability, instability, and instability means death, and stability means safety and life. And then they are in a, such an awful situation that they feel like, well, death means stability. Death is actually symbolizes stability for me now. It's like it's over. It's done. I'm, I'm out of here. Yeah. Um, that's when we got the problem. That's when we got the problem. So our dichotomy is, is really about living in the embracing the instability and it's the instability it's like the only thing i can guarantee you in life is things will change yeah um yeah 
that that's the the only stable thing is change yeah so um yeah. and we yeah. we don't know what's isn't, after isn't there a saying somewhere? we don't like but i thought there's a saying where um, and i think i wrote about it on my blog where i heard this saying the first time in the movie meet joe black which was you now it's such an old movie but it says you know nothing is certain except death and taxes Right. And even then, I think what I wrote was even with taxes, you can evade. So really, the only certainty is death, which, like you say, is a paradox. It's certain that it is the end in some way, but the uncertainty of well, what is it really? Because nobody really knows. Um, and maybe I, mean, I can't say that because there are people who say that they, they can see the afterlife or they've come back from it or whatnot. And I'm not one to say that's not true or not, but at least in my own understanding. Have you had an out-of-body experience? Um, not exactly, I don't think. There has been experiences where I did feel like almost as if I had come out of my body, but and, and it was really interesting because there was a time where um, an, an incident or, or encounter with a person where in that moment I felt some energy and I describe it as a very intensive falling in love experience and it was almost like time stood still and everything stood still and I could see myself like I felt like I was out and I could look into the situation and I could see myself in the person um, I don't know if that was an out-of-body experience or not but that was what the sensation felt like because in a lot of ways i think that one of the things we should do to help people with mental health is give them out of body experiences and let them experience leaving the body going somewhere else experiencing different different um realms and then going okay so i'm here for a bit yeah <laughs> you know like this is not I mean, whether it's true or not, certainly people that have out-of-body experiences, their whole fear of death or their whole perception of, uh, of themselves changes. Um, and, and kind of that, that's kind of what we're about, um, is, is helping people you know, see that there is something else, which is why I started the, the, the Discover Energy Work podcast, was to say, guys, there's so much out there, you just wouldn't believe it, and, and it's great. It's great that we can explore. I think my time is I coming up. Know enough about yeah. I was just going to say, like, I don't know enough about out-of-body experience, but at one point a friend of mine and I were thinking about using virtual reality to give people something similar where people who have not experienced depression or anxiety before to, is there a way to engineer that sensation for them to understand what it is like? And I haven't been to see it uh, yet, but I, from what I understand, um, there's a hospital in Hong Kong who, have, who has started using that as part of their cycle of social education. Um, and I was hoping that this year I'd go and experience it and see it, but of course that's going to be postponed. So it's right. an engineered experience, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know that from the, you know, the rubber hand experiment. Do you know the rubber hand experiment? Um, yeah. Oh, okay. So um, the rubber hand experiment is where you're sitting at a table and they put a, 
they put a rubber hand in front of you and then they put a like a like a a blanket over your shoulder and it covers your arm and it looks like that rubber hand is your hand yeah and then they put your they put a barrier next to your so there's my hand and they put a barrier next to your hand yeah and there uh sorry next to the rubber hand and, and your hand is now like the other side of the barrier there's the barrier and then they take a brush and they brush the middle fi- the like the little finger on one on the rubber hand and your hand at the same time but you can't see your hand you can only see the rubber hand and you get the feeling yeah, yeah. that the rubber hand is your hand and then they they do things yeah. like they take fire towards it and and heaven says have done it and the people are actually feeling the heat uh or they 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 take a hammer and they hit it with a hammer and the person pulls their arm away although they know cognitively know it's not their hand so in my in my thesis for psychology i wrote it that i found that there were people doing that with um virtual reality and they were taking people out of their bodies and experiencing themselves out of their bodies. So I said, like, um, we don't know that very much in psychology. We really don't even know what the self is. Like, come on, guys, stop kidding ourselves. I love psychology. It's a baby. It's got so much to learn, but we really don't know much. And what we do know is fascinating. No, we could talk. I'll look up that rubber hand. Yeah. Oh yes. Well, we could talk for air. I can tell we can talk around, but we can. We have to push. I have to push. Uh, stop on my record, and we can continue talking, uh, or we'll come back and talk again. No, I'm happy to um, end as well because I'm also starting to get quite tired, like as well. That's cool. Well, um, thank you so much for yeah. coming. I'm sure people will love will will love to hear all the things you've said. I always always find like I I feel the self consciousness of uh, will they listen to the podcast and then think I'm really weird <laughs> and and that of course is a, a self judgment and, and that sort of society's expectation of does it gel with my LinkedIn image kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, if they think I'm weird, I, if they, if I've had that thought, I'd think I hope they think I'm weird. Yeah. <laughs> it's like hardly seems worth it no, if they don't. No, no, no. Thanks for listening uh, to that. I thought it was a really interesting talk and certainly a very different one. I want to let you know about a little uh, Discover Energy Work special that I'm doing. I'm attending a class from Michaela Estrati for the InfoVision Seeing Without Eyes. This is an incredible class. I mean, at least the results that are um, happening worldwide with children just um, like riding a bicycle with blindfolds on and, and uh, walking around, uh, making things, reading books with blindfolds on. Um, so I'm really curious about it and I wanted to do the class and uh, Michaela uh, is, is okay that I um, attend and um, do a, a blog about it. So just giving you my day-to-day feedback of how it feels to be on the class and, and the process that... Uh, um, develops and sort of as it develops so um check into that uh it's only on facebook and youtube at the moment but i might make a little like um 
compilation of my experiences on the podcast. Okay, guys, have a great week. Lots of love. Bye-bye.